Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We're physicians and professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. This week, we will be speaking with Dr. Amy Perek. But first, I'd like to check in on current health news. And Harlan, what's on your mind today? Yeah, I thought I'd talk to you about a study that was presented at the American College of Cardiology this weekend. It was the, a trial called the CLEAR trial. And uh, this was a test of a new agent, uh, well, actually one that's been approved for lowering LDL cholesterol, but hadn't been shown to affect outcomes, bempedoic acid, which is um, a drug that is along the same pathway as statins a little bit earlier in the pathway, and it can reduce LDL cholesterol. And there'd been a question about whether or not this could improve outcomes. And you may ask, we have a whole bunch of agents that can lower LDL cholesterol. Do we really need one more? And and what these people did was they said, well, how about the people who say that they have trouble taking statins? Maybe this could be a good alternative. So what they did was they conducted a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial involving patients who were unable or unwilling to take statins owing to what they perceived as unacceptable adverse effects. These people call, are often called statin intolerant. But it just means that these are people who perceive that they have side effects for for statins. In fact, they had to, in the informed consent, say, I can't take statins because of side effects. And so they enrolled 13,970 people from all over the world. And they ended up finding that this drug, compared with placebo, uh, reduced the risk of major cardiovascular events by about 13%, which is, you know, in the range of things kind of modest. Statins have generally reduced risk by about 20%, 15 to 20%, high intensity statins more toward the 20, 22% range. So 13, even though it wasn't head-to-head with anything else, was a little bit less. The people in the placebo group were allowed to take other lipid-lowering drugs, not statins, like, for example, azetamide. So people thought that might have diminished some of the impact. But what I wanted to focus on quickly was that, so the focus on people with statin intolerant, you know, this was promoted as, you know, this is now a drug that can be used for that, which major news outlets were reporting it like that. But in a previous episode, I've talked to you about how there's this nocebo effect. For some reason, people take statins have this perception of being causing side effects like muscle aches and, and exercise intolerance. But when you really look rigorously, like you do an N of one study, meaning you give them a statin or you give them somebody placebo and they don't know which one it is and what they report it out as, it doesn't seem like actually the rates of intolerance to statins is very high at all. Many people perceive it when they're taking placebo. And, and if you look at all the major trials, you pull together, for example, 19 of the major statin trials, it's really hard to find much of an, of a, an effect that is causing people to stop taking statins. And yet there's this buzz about statin intolerance, and many people have this perception. And it was really interesting. And so this drug will cost about four or $5,000 a year. And so should you start switching people over because – They've got this idea that the drug is causing a problem, which when it may not be the drug, and and they should be switching over. And a lot of the cardiology experts were, you know, celebrating that now we have an alternative for people who think that they're intolerant. And I think we ought to be thinking about strategies to help people through this because when they get rechallenged with statins, or they're shown that if they take placebo, they get the same effect that this actually isn't the statins. People can sometimes get through this. So I know what you think about this, but it was. You know, I thought there should have been more discussion at the meeting 
about why are people getting this perception about statins and what can we as physicians do to help people through? And I heard some people tell me our visits are too short, 15 minutes. We can't work people through. Might as well just switch them to another med. But like you're talking about switching from a med that's pennies a day to med that's going to be, you know, much more expensive and maybe not quite as effective. So anyway, it was a, quite an interesting topic of discussion. Yeah, no, I, I you know, you, you pointed the article out to me and I looked at it and um, I want to point out for our listeners that the nocebo discussion occurred in our very first episode of Health and Veritas. Uh, and we're on episode number 71 now. So it felt like we talked about this a few months ago, but it's been a while. You know, I'm on statins. I don't remember if you are or not, but I, you know, no. I am grateful that I'm on statins because, you know, my father had a heart attack at 49 and his father had a heart attack at a young age. And I really think statins work very, very well. I don't know whether any things that are going on with me are related to statins or not, but I seemingly tolerate it well. But I have friends who have been recommended to be on statins who actively have put it off for years, despite having a family history of atherosclerosis, purely because people do talk about these things in, in big ways. So I hope this, uh, you well, know, I do think I, it's I think good it's, to have It's an example options. of our for-profit system, Howie, where, yes. you know, that there's no pay to sit down with people and help them think about and, and manage their fears and concerns and, and maybe unfounded beliefs about the connection to a side effect. It's easier just to write another script. And even if that script's expensive, the you know it ends up being paid for by some third party, and, and largely, let's assume people aren't paying out of pocket for it, and then it ends up raising healthcare costs generally. But that you know, there's there's no one who wants to sit down with a health educator and actually work through this, and so I this agree. becomes we, we default to just giving a med. I agree. I mean, I and I agree with you that once these drugs go generic, there's no for-profit impulse to market or even uh, help clarify issues for patients. But there is a motive for companies with novel pharmaceuticals that are highly profitable to to market. So we, we've got a lot of work to do. Anyway, I just thought that was an interesting thing this weekend. And by, by the way, kudos to the team for having a positive trial, conducting this. It's not easy to do clinical trials. Kudos to the company for bringing forth a new agent. I'm just raising this issue about, you know, the utility and, and how we think about what, what the place is for. But anyway, let, let's pivot to our guest. This is a, uh, we have a really interesting person coming. Go ahead, Howie. Why don't you introduce her? Dr. Amy Preck is the Chief Health Officer at Included Health, where she leads clinical vision and strategy. Included Health's mission is to raise the standard of healthcare with a connected delivery platform encompassing healthcare navigation, virtual primary care, behavioral health, and urgent care. Prior to that, Dr. Parekh was Chief Medical Officer for Population Health and Clinical Integration at UCSF Health. She has also worked at McKinsey and the Clinton Foundation. She serves on the Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts Board of Directors and has been named in Fierce Healthcare's Women of Influence in 2020 and San Francisco Business Times Most Influential Women in Business in 2021. She received her bachelor's degree from Williams College and her medical and law degrees from Yale Medical School and Yale Law School. She then completed an internal medicine residency at Harvard's Brigham and Women's Hospital, where she was elected to serve as chief resident at the Faulkner Hospital. So first of all, I want to just welcome you to the Health and Veritas podcast. And I want to just go back to that decision to do the law degree, which you did during medical school. 
And you were one of the first Yale students to do that. And we have had several since, by the way. Um, and I always mention your name, first of all, when those students come to me, I always say you got to talk to two people. And I mentioned Rahul Rajkumar and I mentioned you. And, and I think they reach out. But I want to know, like, what, what informed that decision and how has that informed your career, both in population health and now with what you're doing with included health? Well, Howie and Harlan, thank you so much for having me, first of all. I know you both probably don't remember, but when I was a med student, first and second year of med school, I walked in both of your offices at various times and probably asked you, Howie, Harlan, how do I make the biggest impact in healthcare that I possibly can? And so you probably had some role in me deciding to go to law school. But I would say the real reason, uh, Howie, was I had already worked at McKinsey and Company prior to uh, going to medical school. And so at my during my time there, I started to understand a little bit of how the money works in healthcare. And I started my third year of med school just so excited about actually taking care of patients. I mean, I was one of those ready-to-go third-year medical students, couldn't wait to take care of my patients to the best of my abilities. And, you know, you very quickly realize that no matter how great of a doctor you are, no matter how much you care about getting the outcomes you want for your patients, there are systemic ways that we uh, regulate healthcare and that we deliver healthcare that make it actually impossible for you to get the outcomes you want for your patients. So there are very specific patients I remember. Patients who, at the time, this is also pre-ACA, Affordable Care Act, for those of you who don't know what that stands for. I would have patients who couldn't get their inhalers outside of the hospital, but would repeatedly come back to the hospital with COPD exacerbations or asthma exacerbations, could not figure out how to live a life that where they weren't exposed to smoking, but continue to take care of them in the ICU at times. I had moms who I was taking care of as a med student who they wanted to breastfeed their children, but WIC, which is Women, Infants, and Children's Program, only paid for formula and not for lactation specialists. So it was really that moment, my first couple months of third year of med school, where I realized I needed to understand how policy and regulation actually affected what I could do for my patients. And that prompted me to apply to Yale Law School and uh, go get that education. And I take that with me in everything I do today. So that combination of truly clinical insight, I mean, you're doing this for the patients at the end of the day, with an understanding of how the larger ecosystem world works. There's nothing like what's going on in reproductive health today or transgender health today that doesn't show that policy and healthcare intersect daily in our lives and bringing that economic lens from the consulting experience to really try and make healthcare better for as many people as possible, day in and day out. I wanted to just take a little bit and talk about included health. Would that be okay? Absolutely. By the way, is, is this connected to Grand Rounds or it, it, it's what Grand Rounds became included health? That's right. So what is Grand Rounds and how did it become included health? Let me just start there. Absolutely. And so what I started uh, here four and a half years ago, it was Grand Rounds Health. And we did a few things. We matched patients to the highest quality in-network providers for, for them. Um, and that was using a lot of data and data science to identify who the highest quality providers were and about the patients. We also did expert medical opinions where we would help members get second opinions by experts, places like Yale, places like UCSF, because many people in America don't have access to institutions like that and doctors like that. And so getting people to the right care. 
Grand Rounds uh, two years ago merged with Doctor on Demand, which was a national scaled behavioral health primary care and 24-7 urgent care provider across the entire country. We also acquired a company called Included Health that at the time did LGBTQ specific navigation for the population that has been historically marginalized by the healthcare community. And together, these three companies, we decided to call ourselves Included Health. And so what we do at Included Health now is full-scale navigation, which means if you have any problem in healthcare, you call us first. We help you find a doctor if you need one. We help you understand your bill if that's the thing you're struggling with. We help you understand if something's in network or out of network. We also can provide you with virtual primary care if that's how you want to receive your primary care. And if you can't get access to in-person primary care, we provide you with behavioral health if that's what you need, both therapy and psychiatry. And 24-7, we have doctors available for urgent care as well. And if you're of the LGBTQ plus community or the black community, again, these historically marginalized communities from healthcare, we have specific products to help engage you with healthcare. And and what's the business model? Who, who's paying you and how does it work? Yeah, so we have two primary clients. The first is large self-insured employers. So Harlan, I think you recall, I like to align incentives in healthcare with the outcomes you want to deliver. And so one of the advantages of our clients being primarily self-insured employers is we have very aligned incentives with them. They pay us to really keep their employees and those dependents healthy and keep their total cost of care down and keep their health outcomes improved so they can actually show up and, and do their jobs and focus on their lives. We also do sell to health plans. That's primarily on the virtual care side of the business. So health plans that want to improve access for their members through virtual primary care, behavioral health and urgent care. I just want to unpack just a little bit about this issue about the top doctors. You know, I I appreciate the interest in trying to identify the top doctors, though I often say, unfortunately, the top 5% of doctors can't take care of 100% of the people. And, and what I spend a lot of time thinking about is how we can raise the level of performance by everyone in the same way that I don't have to worry about who the pilot of the plane is. I don't have to look for the top 10% pilots because we've created a standard that works, but I get that there's tons of variability here. How do you, how do you identify these top doctors? I mean, I know you said data science and data, but can you unpack it for a little, a little bit? And then aren't those doctors busy? How can they manage the demand for their services? So I'm going to answer the question in a couple of ways. The first is, do you just ask the how? So I'll just give you the how a little bit. So we were the first purchaser of the full commercial claims database at the NPI level. So for every single NPI, which is a basically a number that goes with any provider who can prescribe in America. So I have a number, Howie has a number, Harlan has a number, they're all unique. We purchased the entire claims database for all of those patients. So we were the first company to have that set of data. Then we said, well, what actually makes a provider high quality? And so we started to build models with specialists. So if you start with primary care, you build a middle of cardiology, you have to go really specialty by specialty to say, well, what are the outcomes that matter in that specialty? And so that's where the partnership between clinical. So we have a large data science team. We also probably have one of the largest clinical teams in the industry today. You know, I have over a thousand clinicians who report up to me at, at this point in time. But even at, when we had Grand Rounds, we had a very large clinical team. So it's really the matching of the clinicians with the data science team to say, what are these models that actually lead to better outcomes? Primary care, I'll just use some examples, preventive screening rates for behavioral health, depression outcomes, for cardiology, ACS, 
results. So it's it's nothing that's rocket science. I mean, a lot of medicine isn't rocket science. It's really just doing the basic stuff right. Um, and then there's some stuff that nobody had done before. So turns out there's no national database of sanctioned providers. Um, and you and I, we all know that actually to get a sanction is not that easy in a state. And there are still providers, I'll give you an example, we knew, we knew of a provider who was sanctioned in eight states and yet still providing care to patients in a different state. Um, and so we did some stuff that wasn't claims database, but was really just taking other types of data, like sanctioned data, um, and using that on sort of the more lower quality side of the spectrum. So that's a little bit of the how. Obviously, I could talk about this for hours, and a lot of people in our company could talk about this for hours because we get so excited about it. But then the supply problem, and I think that's a really good question that you ask. Like, okay, but then at the end of the day, there's a supply issue here. Like, if only 50% of providers can be in the top half, well, well how do you survive? You know, support 100% of patients. And there's a couple of things there. One, no two patients get the same list. So we actually don't believe in a top one person. So um, Harlan, if you and I were both in New Haven um, and we were both looking for primary care doctors, you would get a different list than I would get because I have a very different claims history and different conditions than you do. I, you know, I'll just say my family, we have a lot of diabetes. And so I need a doctor whose diabetes outcomes are actually weighted very high. Um, you might have something else that you need to be weighted high in the score of the doctor. So it's really about the match. And so the top 50% is different for every single patient, which helps to some extent with some of the supply problems. But 100%, the goal is to raise the standard for everyone. And that means we got to get all doctors performing better, no matter uh, where they are on the board. So I, I want to ask a different question. I know this is near and dear to your heart. You already said it at the beginning, and that is one in four people in this country is on Medicaid at some time during the year, and there's a whole bunch of others who are uninsured uh, or really have limited access to our healthcare system. So they don't get included health at all. What What is the, tell me what's in it for them. How do we get this second tier of citizens, these people who are not able to access the employer-based system that really is a, a, a more enriched insurance system? How do we give them the benefit of what you're doing? So you're right. At this moment in time, we don't offer navigation services to Medicare or Medicaid patients. This is primarily a solution we, included Health, sell to commercially insured patients. Um, I think I'll there's a couple of things that if I were sitting in a Medicaid office at a state or in the Medicare in CMS right now, which is the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, I would be thinking about. I'd be asking, how do we get these types of services to our members? Because my parents are in Medicare. I'll use them as an example. They want included health so badly. I mean, they're like, we wish we could have a phone number we called where somebody helped us with the bill, helped us figure out who actually takes Medicare, because a lot of providers don't. Um, so and I know that is true for Medicaid patients as well across all of the states. But there's a lot of regulatory complexity. So one of the nice things for self-insured employers is they have a lot of freedoms in what they can do from a benefits plan. That is really hard to implement when you have 50 states doing different things in Medicaid. You know, Medicare is has always been tougher. The only way you can get some of this stuff is if you're in a Medicare Advantage plan, uh, where they, again, have a lot of the same freedoms as an employer does in terms of the benefits they can provide. But a lot of this, as we drive innovation in Medicaid, as we drive innovation in Medicare, I think it will be 
how do you take models that have grown up in the commercial space just because of simplicity in many ways and make it easy to implement across these different populations? One of the things that I was wondering about, given that there is limited access to your platform right now, I mean, obviously you guys must have some strategies to think it'd be really good to give more people access to it. If someone randomly says to you, like, I'm trying to find a doctor and they don't have access to all of the toots and whistles that you guys have, what kind of advice do you give people uh, to, to be able to find someone and, and navigate this? Because I, I do think our current system is very challenging on two sides. One is figuring out who might be best for you, absent being able to access a platform like yours, and and getting in because actually, you know, even when you do find someone, it can be quite a quite a challenge to actually get on someone's schedule. What kind of practical strategies might you tell people who are listening? Yeah, so uh, I'm going to say a personal story, and uh, and if I if I'm, I don't know if I'll get in trouble for this, but um, but that'll make fun. <laughs> we um, don't want so you getting so much, in trouble, <laughs> Harlan. If you actually did ask me, hey Amy, I need to go see a doctor. Honestly, what I'll probably do is I'll look in my own app. And I'll say, well, <laughs> here you go. Here's what I said. Put your zip well, code I in. And that. I would uh, I would say, well, this is what the data science tells us. And I would say, She's my new moment. favorite person, Howie. I want to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but you I will say, um, so over 10 million Americans today have access to Included Health's full suite of services. And 50 million people have access to our virtual care services. So we have grown exponentially. And so our goal, you know, 300 employers are our partners today in delivering this. And that will continue to grow. And I think we'll grow in commercial and hopefully at some point Medicare and Medicaid can access these services as well. I want to give you a chance to talk about the origin of included health. And I know that you joined the organization later on in its history, but I'm fascinated by it because I'm a gay man and I grew up at a time where, you know, we had a a seemingly almost covert list of gay-friendly physicians that we would share uh, in our localities when I lived in St. Louis, for instance. Uh, And to this day, I hear from gay individuals, primarily physicians, honestly, who say to me, who can I see because they're contemplating PrEP or they're contemplating something else or they're HIV positive and they're looking for care it's not that easy. It is interesting in a lot of other ways, LGBTQ uh, individuals are not as marginalized at all as they once were. But when it comes to healthcare, there still is a lot of stigma around disease, around treatment, about, um, you know, not, not just sexual Maybe orientation. Maybe lack, lack or of gender. expertise, right, Howie, too? Lack of expertise around those specific issues? From the from the clinicians, absolutely, to even know what, what they need. So, so really would love to hear a little bit about what included health started off and how you're continuing to include that, particularly in your community where you actually do have a larger LGBTQ community than, than other parts of the country. Yeah. LGBTQ plus, I do wish Colin Quinn were here. He's a co-founder and he still obviously works for our company and, and leads a lot of our efforts on this. But to your point, Howie, it is incredibly hard if you are of the LGBTQ plus community to find compassionate, affirmative, and competent care, Harlan, to your point, or on competency. So those are the three things. The legacy included health. We now call it LGBTQ plus communities product. Those are the three things they look for as they look for providers that would be right for that membership. And so they actually started, you know, it's classic Silicon Valley in some ways. Like they started with a problem. These were the things the founders struggled with this. And so they said, 
well, how do we start screening? And so they would call providers' offices and ask a bunch of questions about the competency, the compassion, and whether these providers were providing affirmative care. And so they didn't necessarily start it from a data-informed way. They started it from a, we're just going to start building these networks and having that list of providers who provide this care for patients. And it obviously got a lot of traction. They also sold primarily to the employer community, partnering with employee resource groups in these companies. And now the nice thing of the post-acquisition is now we can use data so that it doesn't have to be so manual to find these providers. Because right. there's some things like around the competence that you can actually see in claims data. Like you can actually see whether a provider knows how to prescribe PrEP or not. You can actually right. see, are they doing the, the appropriate screenings for these populations that they should be doing? So how do we bring data with still some of the qualitative pieces uh, for those populations? And then that team just launched the Black Community Health, which individuals of that community have also been historically marginalized by the traditional healthcare system. So how do we help build trust and get, get that going as well? You know, I wanted to first thank you for taking the time to be with us and uh, we're, we're getting to the point where we have to close this up, but I wanted to ask you one final question, just given your vantage point in healthcare, you know, what, what are the most important thing that you would like to see happen in the next decade in healthcare? Well, that's a really big question, Harlan. But ultimately, I think where we want to be in 10 years, and you should tell me if it's not where you all want to be, is where no matter who you are, no matter what state you are born in, you can access the care um, in a convenient way that works around your life uh, that you need, right? People don't actually want to be spending 25% of their pocketbook or 25% of their mental capacity on healthcare. They want to live their life. They want to be the mom. They want to be the kid. They want to be the soccer coach. They want to be the highly effective employee. Um, so how do we wrap healthcare around the people um, and really uh, get them the best care they can? So that's like the vision. That's probably not even going to happen in our lifetime. So if I say in the shorter term, uh, I do think incentivizing behaviors that put the member at the center. So let's make virtual care accessible to everyone. Let's actually make it such that um, we can have clinicians in rural parts of this country where there's incredible clinician shortage right now. How do we get access to those people? Um, and let's actually move towards value-based care step-by-step. Step. Uh, a lot of that momentum has been lost. So those would be some of the shorter terms. No, no, I think that's a terrific response. And I, I think better access and more affordable, get rid of the financial toxicity and, yep. and, and give people access high quality. I think it's a great response. Thank you so much for, for being with us. It's been a delight to have you with us and uh, lots of good messages for people to hear. Thank you. Thank you, Thanks, Harlan. Thank you, Howie. It was really fun. Howie, that was a terrific interview. And, uh, you know, I do remember, Amy, now after having this discussion, and it's just amazing what happens to some of these students and, and the leadership roles they take on and the impact that they have. It's just such a wonderful that you and I have this opportunity to see see this happen. Yeah. But let, let's pivot to your section. What's been on your mind lately? So there's this nice natural experiment reported in the New England Journal of Medicine that caught my eye because one of the authors is our friend and former colleague, Dr. Julie Sosa, who's now chair of surgery at UCSF. And, and because the findings are actually of immediate and practical value. So it, it's awfully hard to measure the impact of policy. So you pass a bill and enacted into law and it eventually is, you know, being used, but it's hard to know because there's so many other factors and other changes that are going on at the same time. So for instance, here's 
an example of that, you know, do employers that offer paid sick leave in order to get a colonoscopy or a mammogram have higher uptake of those screening tests? Or do people who believe in those screening tests choose employers who offer paid sick leave? So it's hard to know what the cause or the effective effect is, and therefore it's hard to judge policy in that realm. But we do know that there is higher uptake when the time is offered. But is it the policy or is it the selection bias? So it's like two possibilities in there. So Dr. Sosa and her colleagues took advantage of a change in policy in municipalities. Certain municipalities put these mandates in, some of them absolutely forbid them. So you have adjoining areas and multiple areas with different policies in place, and they're changing over time. And in the end, the authors looked at these areas over time, and they find that individuals that are offered paid sick leave are, in fact, more likely to get screening, are, in fact, more likely to get colonoscopies or screening mammograms. And the numbers are significant, statistically significant. They're not huge. They're in sort of the 1% or 2 or 3% range, but that's still significant when you're dealing with population-level change. If we're going to get to a system that commits to preserving health as much as it commits to treating illness, we should be grabbing opportunities like this. And it's just great to see that a piece of public policy can at least be shown to work, because I think there are a lot of people that worry that maybe maybe it doesn't work and maybe we're passing laws that have no effect. And I think this is a good example of public policy that works. Yeah, it's terrific to see this article about paid sick leave mandates and and Julian Sosa, really a star in the surgical firmament and in medicine in general. And and also great to see a leader, a a chair of surgery, who's really focused on pragmatic, practical outcomes research and and, uh, and she did this really... with she did this with economists. I mean, so yeah. it's a great example of collaborating collaborating across fields. Uh, we often see only physicians or only economists writing. This is really a joint effort. I, it was a yeah, great it's a, paper. It's a clever design at. to get to a causal inference from an observational study yeah. piece. So, you know, it seems to me. I'm glad they studied it, but gosh, isn't it just the right thing to do to give people you know pay time off to be able yeah. to take care of these kind of things. And also there's two things. One is our healthcare system is not configured to provide care for when people aren't working. And and Correct. this is paid time off, but many hourly workers simply can't afford the hit that comes with, you know, going to doctors for just good, you know, healthy visit for visits around self, you know, self-care and, and, and health and screening. So, you know, I think we need to get to a compassionate healthcare system and in partnership with employers in ways that enable people to get the care that they need. And then it's nice to see actually, you know, studies that are looking at the optimization of these approaches. But, but yeah, you know, we, we were talking to Amy about like, what would we like to see in a healthcare system? We said more access, we said more affordability and, you know, and I think more coordination so we can recognize that for some people it is really difficult to be able to take off the time necessary to get the care they need. 100%. You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Kromoltz and Howie Foreman. So how did we do? To give us your feedback, or to keep the conversation going, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at H-M-K-Y-A-L-E. That's H-M-K-Y-A-L. And I'm at the Howie. That's at T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E. You can also email us at health.veritas at yale.edu. 
aside from Twitter and our podcast, I'm fortunate to be the faculty director of the healthcare track and founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email for more information on our innovative programs, or you can check out our website at som.yale.edu slash EMBA. You know, Howie, I was thinking you told me when you were talking about this New England Journal paper that you were going to look at your paper, your, your paper issues. You're still subscribing to paper uh, journals? I am. And I'm, I, you know, I'm a little embarrassed to the fact that I still read a print newspaper and I read print New England Journal of Medicine. Um, and I've, you know, I think it's a generational thing. I have a lot of other things I've pivoted away from, but that's not, I love holding the journal in my hand. And yeah, I think that, that it. probably is generous, yeah. but I will admit I love holding a newspaper too. Yeah. <laughs> People are now know what generation we are. So. I know, and, and 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 I do think there's an environmental consequence, but at this point, yeah, we, I haven't been be able thinking to about that too, abate know? it. Yep. Health and Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management. Thanks to our researcher, Jenny Tan, and to our producer, Miranda Schaefer. Every week, they are amazing. Talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks, Harlan. Talk to you soon.